Fashion and beauty are serious business. On this podcast, we will hear from amazing creative entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore their unique success stories, learn from experts, and hear about their journeys. Steve Jobs famously said that, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So let's get crazy. I'm your host, Ann Zuckerman, and this is the Just Wanted to Ask podcast. Ladies, have you ever had one of those uncomfortable headlight moments? Don't you want to be heard without distraction? Bezzy broad discs are your solution. Go to justwantedtoask.com and look for Bezzy broad discs. Hello, everyone. So today, part strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator, Tamsin Webster helps experts drive action with their ideas. Tamsin honed her trademark red thread approach in and for major organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as with hundreds of individual founders, academics, and thought leaders. She's a former TEDx executive producer and current idea strategist. Most recently, Tamsin was named to the Thinkers 50 Radar, Thinkers to Watch, class of 2022. She's also the author of Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. Welcome, Tamsin, to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I've read the red thread. And as I mentioned before we got on air, I have to read it again. And I was trying to mentally take notes as I was listening to the audio version. Um, And now I've ordered the uh, print version because I need to take notes to hone my story. So what makes a great story? So what makes a great story is, well, it's if we think about story in terms of it is how we make things make sense, right? A story is 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 a good story if whatever happens in it makes sense to us, right? So that sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but fundamentally, a story is an argument. That's something people have said about a story for a very long time. It's an argument for a for an idea. And these these stories as arguments happen in our heads all the time. So story is a good story if it if it convinces you of a point of view uh, or convinces you that an action is or is not the right one. Wonderful. And so in one of your videos on your website, which I encourage everyone to watch, you talk about red light, green light, that especially for business people, um, we think about the term sales, but basically as a buyer, you need to not only want the product, but also believe in the product. And you talk in terms of a red light, green light. Um, Tell us more about that concept. Sure. Well, I mean, I think quite simply, a green light is that moment where that story that you're telling yourself about a particular action that you're about to take makes sense. Like if it it does, green light, proceed, we're going to go ahead. 
And a red light means that something in that story isn't working for you. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that particular video that you're referencing is from one of my, one of my keynotes on how to get that green light. Uh, and, and really in a lot of ways, that's what we're, I think with any kind of idea and whether we're talking about actual sales where money changes hand or just trying to get buy-in for an initiative or a program, we need to be focused on what really creates those green lights in people's minds. And it's, it really does come down to like, do I want this? Uh, does it move something that I want forward? And really importantly, does it achieve that in a way that aligns with how I think things should be? Um, because it's that validation of our beliefs that ends up being really the driver, not just of action, but of sustained action, our ability to do the same thing over time, uh, which is really, I think, at the heart of getting that buy-in that oftentimes we're looking for. Sure. Um, so tell us about how uh, Finding the Red Thread became, uh, your book is amazing, and it does tell a story and it, it does progress from chapter to chapter. Um, but, and tell us about how you got to the book and also how you decided on to follow De Beers. Okay. Um, so, it, well, one thing I learned very quickly is that if you're going to give people a framework for presenting information, then one should follow that framework. At least that's my opinion. Uh, I was always, I've always been very surprised that people who, for instance, speak on storytelling, you know, and storytelling structures, and then don't actually use that structure when they talk about it. So I was like, I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to use the structure I'm teaching as I teach it. Um, so that's, that, you know, that's answers that question about, you know, why that chapter and how I came to that piece was just, I had already developed the, my approach to finding these story elements of an idea. And so I figured out what the overarching red thread of the book was. And then once I knew what that was, I went and broke down and figured out. And once we got past the introduction, uh, and the first chapter, what the red thread of each chapter was or needed to be. Um, so within that, I mean, because, you know, and that really represented the principles that I was trying to get across. What are the actions I want you to take? And why, why do I want you to take those actions? Why do I think those actions make sense? But as we all know, nothing explains like a story. And so, you know, the book is full of examples, but one of the examples that is the primary example that I use all the way through is the story of the De Beers diamond tagline, a diamond is forever. Um, and I, I really came to that as, as the primary running example because for a few reasons. One, we're all familiar with it. Uh, most people have heard that tagline. Um, many people have accepted that mental story of that a diamond ring is a symbol of forever. And third, I wanted, I loved it as an example because prior to a very concerted effort by De Beers, that was not the story. So it was a really great example of when presented well, when our brains get all of these pieces of the story of an idea. Again, it doesn't have to be a once upon a time story. It was suddenly something that we didn't even think about before makes sense. Something that we never heard before becomes something that we already agree with. Um, so it was a it was a, it was a fun example to use for all of those reasons. It was it was brilliant. 
And I, I know when I got married, even though I didn't want a diamond engagement ring, I ended up getting a ring, a circular ring with diamonds. <laughs> so. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, because it's, you know, up until, so, I mean, and that's, there's just so many good things about that story. There's, it illustrates so many points that are, that are, I think, important for anyone who's trying to get people to understand or become invested emotionally or, or, or otherwise, or financially in an idea. And that is that, you know, one of the things that was, that ended up being so brilliant was that De Beers didn't say, stop doing what you're doing. Didn't they didn't say stop buying diamond rings as a symbol of your commitment to the person with whom you're engaged? You they basically say, well, we're just going to kind of 10x <laughs> that symbol uh, because you know a circle with no beginning and no end is a beautiful symbol of forever, and it was perfectly good for centuries, really. Um, but De Beers to just shifted that perspective a little bit and said, well, now we can add to that symbolism by focusing not just on that ring as the symbol, but on the kind of ring as the symbol. And that's where by layering in that tagline of a diamond is forever, it really just made us say, well, huh, you know, it created a conflict in people's minds. Cause if you want the quote unquote best symbol, you know, and you're, and you're trying to embody forever and you've only been thinking about like a metal ring well, all of a sudden you add to it this other piece of information of a diamond is forever. And it's hard to stick with just the ring, right? It's hard to stick with just the ring as the symbol because you, now your brain says, but there's another way we could say, you know, we could add to the foreverness of this. Um, and, and that mechanism that happens in our brains happens anytime we're presented with information like that in the right way. And that was really what I was trying to make as simple as possible for the readers of my book was how to do that for themselves with their own ideas. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Oh, and tell us the story about the red thread because Itself? that is the title of your, of the book. Yeah. I mean, I came to the expression, the red thread from, through clients actually who were Northern European and in both cases they were Swedish, but it's a fairly common idiom in Northern European languages uh, to refer to the big idea that connects something, the logical progression of ideas, the, you know, the, the, the thing that connects everything, the thing that makes things make sense as a red thread. Um, and the first time I heard it, I just thought it was such a beautifully vivid mental image for connecting things together. Uh, because so many, like, if you think about it, like that's whenever we hear new information, that's really what our brains are trying to do. We're trying to connect things. We're trying to say, well, why does this make sense? Um, we're trying to find that story, whether we realize it or not, that connects everything together, that explains the relationship between one thing and another. So I went looking for, well, why is it a red thread? Like, why are they called that? And, you know, there's there's red threads in so many different cultures and so many different um, mythologies and religions and, and creeds and all sorts of things. Um, and so what most people believe is the root of this particular use of the red thread in that particular context, uh, comes from Greek myth, uh, of, and particularly the myth of, or the legend, depending on how you want to look at it, of uh, Theseus, the Minotaur and the Minotaur's labyrinth. Um, and so a quick version of the story is that Theseus was the son of the king of Athens. Uh, and so he was its future king. And 
Um, so as its future king, he was pretty invested in making sure that he preserved and saved Athens for the future, except that was pretty very much in danger because Athens was kind of in the in the grips of a of a tyrant um, who was demanding a tribute in the form of Athens' best and brightest youth um, every year, seven years, depending on which version of the the legend you you read or whichever which depending on which translation you follow, I guess. Um, and so basically this, there was this brain drain happening in, in Athens. And one year, Theseus was one of the ones that was sort of, you know, chosen to go. I mean, it was not something where, you know, or, or and again, in some versions, he volunteered to go because he's like, this is my city. I'm going to save it. This I'm going to be the person that gets rid of, you know, that ends this tribute once and for all. Now, the tribute is where the Minotaur comes in because these best and brightest were sent in to the Minotaur, which was this half man, half bull monster um, that pretty much destroyed and ate anybody that came in near it. Um, so that was the problem everybody knew about and everybody needed to focus on was how do you kill the Minotaur? How do you defeat the Minotaur? But there was something else that needed focus and attention as well. And that was the fact that the Minotaur lived in a maze. Uh, and which meant that even if someone de defeated the Minotaur, because this maze was so dark, so complicated that the Minotaur itself couldn't get out, if anybody, Theses included, couldn't get out once they killed the Minotaur, well, then they hadn't re... I mean, they succeeded in one thing, but they didn't succeed overall. And because Theses was the son of the king, needed to get out, it was extra important for him to get out. So what he did differently was that he brought a tool for each task. He brought a sword to kill the Minotaur, and he brought a skein of red thread, uh, supposedly red. Who knows? If it was a, there's a valid question. If it was a dark labyrinth, why did it need to be red? But who knows? Um, but he used the red thread to trace his path that he, that he took through the labyrinth so that once he defeated the Minotaur, which he did, he could retrace his uh, path on the way out. So... Once I discovered that as the background story, I was like, oh, well, not only is that cool, like great story and really interesting story about making sure you have the right tool for the task, but it was also mimicked the process that I saw that what I had developed did, did very much the same thing. It very, walks people through the steps they took uh, mentally to come to the solution to their problem. And that by figuring out what those steps were, we could retrace the steps backwards so that somebody else could follow, follow those same, that same path. And so, uh, yeah, the red thread was born. And fun fact, uh, when I first came up with the process of creating story structure for ideas, uh, I hadn't actually married it to that name. And so it, had, it didn't have a name for about six months. And then, then I was like, you know, actually, <laughs> this is a good name for it. Um, and so that's how it was born. So in your book, you also, along that same line, you cover five core elements, and they're your chapter titles. Yes. Uh, tell us more about that. So one of the things that I was trying to do with this idea that, okay, you know, principle number one, every decision we make has a story behind it. So every idea that we have is a story we have has a story behind it because our brains are trying to make things make sense. Every idea is essentially the end of an internal argument that we had that I've got this question because these things are true. This is the right answer. And we don't do this consciously very often at all, but 
you know, research and scientists know that stories are how, like, A, that our brains do this, and B, that without this, things don't make sense. So I was trying to figure out, well, what are these elements so of these stories? Because if we could figure that out, then we could essentially break any idea into those components, make sure that we're presenting those components to people, and then essentially just uploading our idea into the story processes of people's brains. In other words, our brains are looking for these pieces of information. So how can we break an idea into those parts so that we can just go bloop, like they're, they're, you know, hey, audience's brain, here are those pieces of information. And so I went looking for what are these elements that our brain needs to have, but there really hasn't been much research on that. So I said, you know, my, my kind of hypothesis was, well, since stories like the stories we tell other people are such a common way for illustrating ideas and kind of landing arguments and teaching lessons. What if the elements of those stories that we tell other people were the same as the elements that we tell ourselves? Like that, that the whole reason why the stories that we tell other people have those elements is because those are what, those are the pieces that we need and the stories that we tell ourselves. And you know, by experience, kind of reverse engineering, that does seem to be true because if you do include these five elements, then people tend to understand the concept. So what are those five elements? Well, I wanted to make sure these elements were true for any kind of story. Now, and the reason I say that is because there's been a lot of conversation over the last few years, particularly about the hero's journey, about, you know, the monomyth or the quest or that kind of thing. And that makes sense because the hero's journey appears in some form or another in every culture, but it's not the only form of story. And given who I work with client wise, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of you know, technical startups that are, are working on these big problems, the hero's journey actually didn't fit well because there wasn't, you know, one of the big rules of a hero's journey is that the hero saves the day. The hero solves the problem. Yeah, that we're not, you can't solve climate change with one company, right? We can't, you know, and if you're talking about, let's say, an arts institution, what is the, who's the villain there, right? Like that's, that doesn't fit. So I was looking for elements that show up in every story. And, you know, after kind of processing all of the things that I found, I determined that there were five, um, four big ones. And then the, the fifth kind of snaps into the last one. So what are those five? The first one is a goal. Uh, that is something that the hero or the main character, and let's say the protagonist doesn't have to be hero, um, wants, but doesn't yet have. And that's, that's where our story starts is kind of that because our curiosity gets engaged at that point. And they're like, oh, this person wants that thing. They don't have that thing. How are they going to get that thing? The next major element in every story is a problem that they didn't know they had that's getting in the way of the problem they do know they have, right? So the goal is really the question, like the problem that they know they have. And then what I call the problem or the two-part problem um, is the thing that gets in the way. It's, it's another problem that they have to solve before they can get that thing that they want. Next element in every story is something that is generally known as the moment of truth. It has other names, but it's, it's, it's what happens immediately before the, the mental decision to do something different or not, right? Like, so it's, it's what happens immediately before kind of the resolution of the story starts. And 
that's the moment where, as Aristotle described it, the main character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. So that's where they are. Uh, some piece of information is recalled or revealed or discovered that explains that things are not actually what they thought they were and that or they're reminded of the way things actually are in such a way that status quo is not possible, can't stay still. Um, and so therefore, right, because that 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 moment of truth drives a choice, right? The next part, the change, as I like to call it, um, is the is the is the decision that happens. It's it's resolving that conflict of I want this thing. There's there's this other problem in the way that's probably caused by my own actions. Um, third, this other thing is true. So now I need to do something different in order to get the thing that I want, right? Or to decide that I don't want that thing and I want something else different. So goal, problem, truth, change, that's the four. And then the fifth is the actions. What specifically does someone need to do now that they've made that decision? Now that they've kind of, you know, passed that point of no return, what do they do to resolve it? Um, so that those five elements, goal, problem, truth, change, action, uh, are in every story that we tell other people. And I would argue that at one level or another, they're in every story that we tell ourselves. So true. And so that is the dilemma that I've been uh, working on because I have a varied business background, how to get it all together and create a story that makes sense. Yes. yes. And so yeah. I have to have it make sense for me before I can have it make sense for someone else. Hence the reason why I have to reread your book and go back over my notes. Yeah, that's, I mean, what, that, I, that's, that is what I've heard from readers is what they recommend as the way to do it anyway. So you, you found the best way to do it, which is to read the whole thing once without actually doing kind of really consciously doing any of the exercises just to really understand how everything fits together um, and then go back through because you know, on that second pass, because you have a better sense of how it's all going to fit together, you tend to um, put things, you, you tend to start in a slightly different place than you would when on the first time through. Um, but yeah, what you described, and is really common where a lot of times, you know, for I think of so many of us, we feel like we did this thing, and we do that thing, and we do this other thing. And you're like, obviously, it all connects somehow, because you're the one that did it. Um, but I find that, yes, absolutely, that each of us has a red thread. And sometimes it's a matter of kind of pulling out a little bit and saying, well, what, what, what is that big question that I like to help people solve? Or what, what have been the deeper problems that I have kind of generally am drawn to? Um, what are some of those principles that I think guide the way things work or the way they should work? And so Therefore, how is that taught? Like, how is that developed into a series of of you know, of tools, for instance? Yeah. So for me, I would say, you know, just as an example, I'd say really there's two principles that guide the nature of kind of everything I've done or have ever done. And and one is uh, a bent towards efficiency. So I very much am a subscribe to that uh, proverb that a stitch in time saves nine. I'd rather do one thing now than and have to do nine things later on the same topic. Um, and I believe that words are the currency of ideas, right? So that however much we want to get an idea out there, it 
has to go through this just wildly flawed system of language that we have. And so um, because of those two things, right, uh, my that you know, to me, it's it, that's why my work is so focused on how do we quickly and efficiently find the core of an idea through the words that are going to be most powerful to get them out there. And so I think that most of us can can do a similar thing. I mean, it does take some thinking, right? I, I didn't just like pull that out of the hat. I've thought about this for a long time now. Like, well, what, 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 what would those principles be that guide why I do what I do the way that I do it? But I think when you can do that, then all of a sudden, as you say, you've got a way to, it suddenly makes sense to you. You're like, oh, that's why. Um, so that you're in that position to be able to get somebody else to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. And what an interesting combination of things, right? To say, oh, right. Like the, you know, I mean, I think for me, I find that people, it's, it's just this idea of kind of all the things that are wrapped up in that stitch and time piece that bend towards efficiency, trying to really, you know, get to a point where people can, you know, build that skill for themselves um, so that they don't have to keep revisiting this problem for themselves like it just you know yeah it it that's why it makes sense to me and once i can articulate that i think hopefully it makes more sense to other people why why i think that that's a good approach yeah well it, it totally makes sense to me um you've also worked with a lot of tedx speakers yes. and one of the things you say in your book is very often people come to you but they can't articulate what they do. And of yes. course, that's what you've been talking about, actually being able to explain in a way that makes sense in a very condensed way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, the kind of official red thread name that I call give that is the through line, but and more from a practical sense, something, something that really makes it, I think, tactically makes sense is this idea of a strategy in a sentence. So people need to understand what you do, why, and how in a sentence or less. They really do, particularly with how much information we're getting you know, from everywhere these days. People need to be able to get something that they understand intuitively right off the bat so that they can decide whether or not they want or need to learn more. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it is, again, a skill and a discipline, but I think there are few few skills more important right now than being able to get the heart of the matter very quickly. Um, and yeah, it's going to take some work, but back to stitch and time saves nine. It's actually going to save you a lot of work down the road because having that kind of clarity makes it so much easier to build all the other things you need to build from brand to sales messages, to content, to all of those other things. And it also saves time in helping to really establish who you're for and who you're not so that you're not wasting effort back to efficiency. Um, you're not wasting effort on people who don't need what you've got or don't want what you have um, or don't agree with the underlying principles about how you get there. You know, and there there is a point where they're just you you can't act. You're not actually for everybody. Your approach, your skills may in certain situations could potentially benefit anybody, but not everybody is for you because not everybody's ready. Not everybody's, you know, aligned with how you see the world and all of that kind of good stuff. So I'm, 
I'm pretty passionate about that idea of like, can you state your strategy in a sentence? Um, and it's, I think that that language of strategy helps to indicate also where people go wrong. Because a lot of times people will say, well, I, you know, I do this thing, right? We are, a, you know, a, a, a software as a service platform, you know, for automating shipping. Okay, but like, why, right? Um, and And how? And so to me, it's much more powerful to say something like, you know, we use, um, you know, we help company, you know, we use, uh, let me try to get this right. We use automation, right? And, uh, uh, across the entire design cycle, right? Uh, so that one product's end can become another's beginning, right? Something like that. Do you know everything about it? No, but you know that it's, you know, it's going to be circular design, you know, it's going to be automation. And you know that from, you know, for company, and you can even leave it in for companies that, you know, Electronics manufacturer companies create a lot of e-waste. You know, we help. Uh, we use automated design across the entire design cycle to make sure that one product's end is another's beginning. In other words, we are going to help you design your product so that they are less likely to create e-waste right afterwards. So it's also the difference between saying something like, you know, we produce simple diagnostics that improve patients' adherence to medications versus we help keep people on critical medications longer through simple tests that turn the effects that people can't feel into results they can see, right? Just that shift between jargon, 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 like here's what we do and maybe a little bit of why, but not in a way that you understand into something that's a little bit more powerful can be very helpful. Yeah. Um, and it, then you suggest that people try to do it within 144 characters, which is definitely a challenge. Well, that's where the I mean, it is. And it's where the discipline comes in. And I, I believe in those those kinds of constraints, just like I believe in you know that any good, new, novel, innovative idea can be boiled down to two core principles. Um, it's, it is, it is that choice, you know, it's those kinds of constraints force choice and those kinds of choices force clarity. It makes you decide what you're really about and what's really important. And that's necessary if you want other people to understand what's, what you're really about and what's really important. Because if you don't know, how are they going to know? Right? So it's kind of like this idea of, you know, if we're going to play a game of catch, right, and it's really critical that, you know, I catch all the balls, is it better for you to throw me five balls at once or to throw me a ball at a time, right? I'm going to argue that the probability of my catching those balls is going to be a lot higher when I only have to try to catch one ball at a time rather than five. And yet so often when we're talking about our ideas, we're throwing five balls at once. Now. Let's add to this analogy and say, okay, not only are there five balls, right? But but two of them are glass and three of them are plastic. In other words, two of them are really critical. And if you don't land those two, if I don't catch those two, like then the game is absolutely over, right? The plastic ones, they'll bounce. They're fine. They're not critical, right? And if, you know, we can always get them back. But those two glass ones have to go. 
which means you want to be super, super clear on which ones are the glass ones so that I know which ones I really need to focus on catching. And the same thing is true when you're talking about your idea or if your idea is yourself, what that is. You need to be able to say, hey, there's this one big thing you need to know about and it has these two components and really make doing the work of figuring out what's actually critical to you for people to understand is work that pays off so strongly in the long term that it is again back to keep coming back to it but it's worth it's worth that stitch in time right now right it's worth doing right now because it it just saves so much effort and confusion and lost opportunity um than trying to throw five balls at people and they don't know which one's important sure and then it's a win-win because your client understands who you are and what you do right and has chosen you for the right reasons and you acquire the clients that understand you, which makes it easier for you to, to do what you do best. Yeah. And, and they get to drive, right, how much more they want or need to know. And so as much as we all talk about, you know, putting the customer or the audience at the center, a lot of times that's lip service at best when if if it really comes down to how we how we actually do those kinds of things because we basically say well you know a lot of times what we're ending up doing is just saying well let me figure out like the best way to say this for you rather than actually saying i'm going to give you i'm going to respect you enough to give you the the least amount of information that fully explains my idea right and then from there you can decide, you know, to me, that's the principles. What are those kind of two core principles? What's the, what do they add up to? Um, you know, what's the big idea? You know, if you've got this question, here's my answer. And it's based on these two principles. Like if you can, you can do that. That's great. And that's not one sentence, that whole explanation. That's what I would call like a manifesto in a minute. Like it's not one sentence. That's where you need to get a little bit more in there. But by doing that, some, your audience gets to decide, oh, that's interesting. Either can you give me an example or can you tell me more or that sounds great. Where do I get started? And again, you're not wasting their time or yours walking them through steps that they either don't need or you're not skipping steps that they actually do need uh, in order to really buy in in the way that you want them to long term. So on your website, you break down three different ways that people can work with you. Uh, tell our audience how they can do that. Well, I, that's a great question because I don't know which which ways you're referring to right now because I don't have it right up on. But generally, um, working with me, I, I do a lot of work one on one. That's that's kind of one of my favorite things to do. Is you know, I'm, I'm definitely a a strategist who speaks more than a speaker who happens to, you know, work with people consulting. I'm primarily a consultant. Um, so I do a lot of work one-on-one -on -one with folks. Um, and that almost always starts with something I call a super session, which is where we're really finding that red thread, that, that story, those core principles, how they come together, working to find that strategy in a sentence in that one minute manifesto um, so that you can start your conversations that way. Uh, I do also do a lot of speaking and training and workshops for folks. So that's kind of a one-to-many model. Um, so from keynoting to keynoting plus breakout, keynoting plus breakout plus workshop, and then often, oftentimes combining that with consulting as well. 
Um, so I think that's, that should cover most of the bases, but if I left something out, let me know, Anne. Um, no, that sounds great. Um, and I do encourage everyone to go to your website. Uh, so tell us where people can find you. Sure. Best place to find me is TamsinWebster.com. I'm the only Tamsin Webster spelled this way. So if you guess correctly, which is T-A-M-S-E-N and then Webster like the dictionary, uh, you're pretty much guaranteed to find me. Well, all that information will be in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough. I can't wait to go through the book again. I have to do um, some work for my own business and a promotional video that I'm planning on doing. And so I've got to get it right. So I'm going to reread the book. Super. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, submit a rating and review, and share us with your friends. This helps our message reach more listeners. For more information about my products, visit justwantedtoask.com. Thank you. Thank you.